0: If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts, Acts chapter 13. If you don't have one, look underneath you, Um, and it's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, Let me be also maybe the first to thank you for playing cello with us, and also maybe be the first to invite you to move to Rock Hill, and stay at Remedy, and play the cello every week. That'd be great. Um, Thanks for playing with Jordan uh, in the band today. He's a worship leader. I think he introduced, I I wasn't in the room when he did the introduction, but... um, Thank you, and so, I'm going to try to find you a job in Rock Hill, and so you can stay here. Anyway, um, if you have a Bible, as I said, you can open up to Acts chapter 13, verse 13, 13, 13. So, that's where we're going to be starting. We've been going through the book of Acts now uh, for for a long time. And uh, last week, we looked at Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 2. Today we're picking up 13. We're actually going to go from 13 to the end of the, of the chapter, 52. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of review so we can kind of know what's going on. And then you'll you'll know uh, how, how it's going to look here from 13 on. The, the big portion of what's going on in uh, the section that we're going to be looking at today from 32 to 15 is Paul's sermon. So go ahead and put up that first slide uh, just so you can kind of see how the entire part, section that we're going to be looking at is broken out. Put up that first slide. No, not that, the next one. Come on. That one, perfect. So this is, from verse 13 to 52, what you're looking at. The first thing we're going to like, from verse 13 to 15, just that first little section, verse 13 to 15, you're going to see the obey to, uh, the call to fulfill the Great Commission. Paul and Barnabas are going and preaching the gospel. They're saying, yes, we want to. we want to go tell people about Jesus. And that's where we're going to see that's continually actually happening from verse uh, 1. But today we're looking at 13 through 15. Um, This is where they're going to obey this call to go fulfill the Great Commission. Then when they get there, at this particular city, um, Paul's going to stand up. You can see there at the second half of verse 16, where it starts a new paragraph. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And then he launches into this sermon. So from uh, that particular verse right there, 16b, all the way to 41, all the way to 41 is Paul's sermon. So... You can see the second part, obey the call to preach the gospel. Um, And so when you hear that, don't think, oh, that's just for the pastors. That's for every one of you. Every one of you can tell the gospel to someone. And so the the big portion of this, which is what we're going to zoom in on, that particular section there, the second part is obey the call to preach the gospel. Paul goes and he preaches the gospel. Um, in this particular city, we're going to talk about all the details in just a second. And then after that, from 42 down to 52, there's just kind of a mixed bag of reactions from everybody. You can see, realize the response is always mixed. There's, there's people that like it, there's people that don't, there's opposition, there's reveling, or I'm sorry, reviling against them. Um, there's people that get saved, there's persecution that comes, and then they're, they're still happy. You know, Paul is still happy that people get saved. So there's just kind of mixed bag of results that happens, and we should just realize that's... That's what happens when the gospel is preached. So, that's the, that's the big picture of, of the, of the uh, chapter. Now, what I'm going to do whenever, this isn't our outline, that's just kind of a, an opening, broad kind of stroke to what's happening. There's a, there is another outline as we're going through. The outline that we're going to be looking at is going to be more the contents of the sermon. But before that, I want you to see the map of what's going on so you can understand <clears throat> uh, from last week to this week what's going on. If you remember in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, um, Paul, I'm sorry, Barnabas heard that there are some people up here in Antioch, uh, and this is in Acts chapter 11, not the one we're in, that we're trying to tell people about Jesus. And so they sent Barnabas, who was in Jerusalem. Um, they sent Barnabas. They said, hey, they're struggling. They're trying to start a church. This is the very first Gentile church that's being planted. So Barnabas goes from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and he helps them plant a church. While he's there, he, he stays there for about a year. He realizes, I can't do this by myself. So he goes over here to where Paul's from, from Tarsus, and brings Paul back And so Paul and Barnabas plant this church in Antioch for a good, they stay there for a good year. The first Gentile church is planted in Acts chapter 11. At the very end of the time they realize um, down in Jerusalem they need some money uh, and so we're going to take from this church plant who is eager to help their young Gentile church plant, probably not a whole lot of money, we're going to take some money down to Jerusalem and give them some of the money uh, so that we can help them out, which is what we saw And 1225, last week we picked up at 1225, where in 1225 it says, but Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. So this is, they were down in Jerusalem bringing that gift. They returned from Jerusalem back to Antioch. And it says they returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service uh, that's bringing that money. But while they're in Jerusalem, they went ahead and collected John Mark. He's the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And Mark joined them up in Antioch uh, last week in 13. So then... Uh, The shift happens. The major shift in the book of Acts. We've been saying Acts chapter 1 verse 8 serves as the overall outline for the entire book of Acts where where he says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Um, The the first seven chapters are them being the witnesses to Jerusalem. Eight through 12 are them being the witnesses to Judea and Samaria. And then 13 all the way through 28 is them being witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so we saw that this is the major shift where now they're going to start taking this gospel to the ends of the earth. They're going to, they're going to be obedient to that call to do that. And so and 13.1 is where they say, okay, now we're going to start doing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so they... <coughs> They walk from Antioch to Seleucia. They take a boat down to Seleucia, down Salamis. They proclaim the gospel this entire 90 miles from Salamis all the way to Paphos. And that's where we end last week. While we're in Paphos, 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 whatever, while we're there last week as we're looking at it, there was a magician that was against them that didn't want Paul to witness to this proconsul, Sergius Paulus. So Paul just kind of got annoyed enough with the... uh, with the uh, magician Alimus that he just makes him blind. He's like, you're blind and you can't see anything now. And so he he goes blind. Sergius Paulus gets saved. And we see the contrast of as this man's physical eyes who opposes the gospel is dim. This man's spiritual eyes are opened up who believes in the gospel. Um, And then we just kind of left it from there. But as we pick up what's going to happen in 1313, Paul and Silas are going to leave Paphos and sail up to Perga and then go up to Antioch in Pisidian. So it's not the same Antioch, it's a different one. It's the Antioch that's in the region of Pisidia. So that's where we're going to be picking up in thirteen thirteen. You can see in verse 13, it says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and in Pamphylia and John left them. So John was with them from Jerusalem to Antioch all the way through there. The commentators are just kind of picking on him a little bit. They're saying the, the young rich boy just couldn't take it or uh, he was also like Barnabas' nephew, and he didn't like the shift from Barnabas and Saul to now Paul and Barnabas. He didn't like that his, his uncle wasn't the number one man in the show. Or maybe he just needed to go home. Maybe it was just a short internship and they just had an agreement. In the reality, we don't know. But we do know a little bit later on, which we'll see, is that it did frustrate Paul a little bit that he left. That's all we know. But, but John Mark clocked out. He left and went home. And it says, John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they're up in, in Poseidon and Antioch, but they went on from Perga and went to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, so we'll stop there. So you, I, I have this map just because I know as you read these cities, you're like, I don't know these places. And so I think it's helpful to have a map to see where they're going in the Middle East. So you can go ahead and take that off. Um, and <clears throat> this is what we're gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna pray and then we'll um, go in and we'll take a big look at the, the long text and then we'll, we'll unpack it. And I want you to see what Paul's really doing here because it's, it's pretty astounding. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into the text. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you have given it to us as a gift, that you have spoken, that uh, you are not a silent God, you don't remain silent, but instead uh, you have spoken to us and it has come through your word. And so these aren't just words written down by people. Instead, these are uh, your breathed out words to us. And so I pray that we hold Your word in high regard. And we trust all the things that it promises to do. And we will set our hearts and minds right now in these next few moments to think deeply, to see Christ in the scriptures, to understand the gospel more deeply and to be set aflame by the power of the spirit to live a life that glorifies you. I pray that all of us will be taught in these moments that myself, even though I'm the one talking, that all of us will be taught I pray for your help this morning. Help me understand that there's no way that I could ever preach a sermon unless I'm filled with the Spirit. That I don't ever want to try to preach a sermon unless I'm filled with the Spirit. So God, I'm dependent upon you, completely dependent upon you to speak through me and to me and to all of us this morning. And I pray that uh, as this happens, Lord, we would be blessed by it, that we would trust in Jesus more deeply, and for those that don't know Christ, that they would trust in Jesus this morning. pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So the other day, I was sitting in my house with my children, um, and they were just kind of messing with each other, not in a bad sense where, you know, you've really got to bring out the discipline, but they're just messing with each other. And uh, Aiden, my eight-year-old, now nine, says something kind of goofy or silly And my little six-year-old, Mikala, looks at him and goes, I feel sorry for your future. Um, And so (laughs) I think that's just really funny. And so I kind of act funny and goofy, and I say something crazy to her. And she looks back at me, and she goes, and I feel sorry for your future. And then she goes, oh, wait, you're already in your future. And I'm like, oh, that's worse um, to say you feel sorry for my future. (laughs) In her her mind, um, I'm old. I'm already in my future. There's no future ahead. I'm in it, and like... I'm in the grave like one foot in uh, at any day now. Um, but I started kind of thinking about the little, the, I don't know where they get that from, uh, but uh, I started thinking about what she said. And it's a good thing to kind of live by, right? It's, it's helpful to think this way because a lot of us, uh, at least I was, especially where I was always in these transition points um, and most of us are in that. Like um, once I finally get out of high school into college or once I finally get out of college and get my job, once I finally... Um, stop dating, get married. Once I finally get rid of this part-time job and get this full-time, I just need to get this one thing kind of done first and then I'll really be in my future. Then I can start you know, making the right decisions, living for Jesus. I can you know, do all the things that God wants me to do. It's just, I've got these things first that really need to happen first and then it's time for me to buckle down. Then it's time for me to get my stuff together and really live in my future, but I'm not there yet. And I, I just want to help us understand that um, today's the day and now's the time. There is no waiting for that next step first because you don't even promise that. There, don't wait for that thing. Don't wait for that degree to ha- ha- come or that job change to happen or finally have that first kid or finally get whatever. But instead say, I'm called to live on mission right now. I'm called to live for Christ right now. I'm going to do these things right now. I want you to realize that when we're looking at this, um, when Paul decides to leave Antioch, and they they pray, and they fast, and they set sail, and even here, when they set sail from Paphos to Perga, this is quite different. Uh, chapter 13 is very different than the rest of the book of Acts in regard to spreading of the gospel. So, if you remember, when we are looking... <coughs> <clears throat> at the first chapters, the reason why the gospel left Jerusalem and went to Judea and Samaria was because of persecution. Persecution came to Jerusalem and those who were Christians thought to themselves, I don't want to stay right here because I'll die in Jerusalem. So I'm going to leave Jerusalem. Put up that map for me, Karis. So when, when they're in Jerusalem right here, they realize when, when the, those who are opposing their message uh, tried to kill Christians right after the stoning of Stephen, they say, we got to get out of here. We need to leave so we don't die. And as they left, because they loved Jesus and they went to other places, just as they're in another region, being Christians, being good Christians, they would tell people about Jesus. And so the reason why the church was spreading or the gospel was spreading from Jerusalem to Judea, to Judea and Samaria, albeit, yes, it was the sovereign hand of God, but humanly speaking, the impetus for the gospel going forward was persecution. The reason why it was moving out was because of persecution. Chapter 13 is different. Persecution had not come. And then they're like, oh, we gotta get out of here. And while we're going, we're just gonna go spread the gospel. This is not that. This is different. Chapter 13 is Paul and Barnabas saying, persecution is not the impetus behind us going and sharing the gospel. Instead, it's us, the church, believers in Christ, Owning the call, saying, yes, I'm going to take responsibility to obey Matthew 28. I'm going to spread the gospel. And so it's not persecution being the impetus of the catalyst to push them out and go to the next region. It's just Paul and Barnabas saying, we want to be obedient. And so we're going to get on this boat and we're going to go over there where people don't know Jesus and we're going to preach the gospel. So there's a slight difference, right? And so I I don't want for you to... Take the fir- if if it is the sovereign hand of God bringing opposition and you need to proclaim Christ, that's great. But also, let's just be <clears throat> obedient to the call that's given to us all in Matthew twenty-eight. Let's just preach the gospel because the Lord wants us to preach the gospel. And another thing, if we're just taking a kind of a big uh, big picture look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter thirteen and chapter fourteen, there's a little bit of difference here as well. It's called contextualization. So Paul, as he goes to chapter or goes into these regions in chapter thirteen, these people look at sixteen B. Right when he starts off the sermon, notice what he says: "Men of Israel and you who fear God, men of Israel and you who fear God." So this sermon is directed right, uh, exactly towards or directly towards people who are Jewish, but Gentiles. But the Gentiles, specifically the one who knew that there was a God knew that, that, um, that were monotheistic, not, not pagan and secular and, and polytheistic, but were Gentiles that were monotheistic and that had already been drawn to the Jewish faith probably because of its ethical emphasis. So these were people that were already religious, if you will. And so in Acts chapter 13, he preaches the gospel to them in a certain way. He contextualizes it. Contextualization doesn't mean he changes the gospel. It means he knows his audience. And so when he goes there, he knows that there's already this groundwork foundation of understanding of the Old Testament. So that's where when he preaches the gospel, you can see, we're going to see it in just a second. He references lots of things from the Old Testament. He points towards verses in the Old Testament. He helps them see directly how David was a king and it points right to Jesus being the king. He takes a direct line. So he, he takes a very systematic, understandable approach to sharing the gospel with them because of who they were. But when, we'll do this next week, but when he goes to Acts chapter 14, they're Gentiles, but they're pagans. They don't have this understanding, underlying foundation. They're polytheistic. They don't understand the ethical laws of the Jews. And so he takes a different approach with them. He contextualizes. And so... There's something that we can take from all this, just as a big picture taking a look at this, is that God calls us right now to proclaim the gospel. We're not promised that one day once we get our stuff together, then we should. And when we're doing that, we should obey the call to be obedient to sharing the gospel, not because of opposition, but finally we're just going to say, I'm owning it. I'm taking the responsibility and I'm sharing it. And further, I'm going to think about the people I'm sharing with whether they're super religious or completely irreligious, I'm going to tell them the same message, but I'm going to be winsome and wise as I do it and use more Christianese and more religious language with these people because they already had the foundation. But with these people, I'm not going to say it the same way. I'm going to take another approach, though it be the same message, and share the gospel with them in a different way, not with the same way I would hear with them. So just as a, a big picture way to think about it, I think we should, we should um, think strategically whenever we want to share the gospel with people. So here it says that they, <clears throat> verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. They come to Pergamum, and Pamphylia, They John leaves, he, he does, he's done. But they went on from Pergamum, came to Antioch, Poseidon. And on that Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. So they arrive on the Sabbath and, and Paul sees these people. He sees that they're religious people, sees that they're Jewish or at least uh, adherents to Judaism, though they may be Gentiles. And he thinks, perfect place to go. He's already a rabbi. They, they would have re, They do recognize him, we'll see, as a rabbi. He goes into the synagogue, and you can see what happens. So, so since he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, where they would be having worship, after the reading of the law and the prophets, which is the, kind of the customary way that they would have the service, the rulers in the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So after the reading of the law and the prophets, this is how they would do it. Right from the from the Pentateuch and then from the prophet. After this happens, they look and they see Paul's a a rabbi, and so since Paul's a rabbi, they say, "Brother, do you have a word? Since you're a rabbi, you should share with us." And that's kind of like telling a Baptist pastor, "Hey, do you want to come up here and tell a sermon about Jesus?" Well, I probably could think about something. Let me let me like, of course he's got a word. Like, uh, I got something I can say for sure. Let me let me let me see. Let me find a verse. So Paul's like, "Yeah, I've got a word. That's that's a good thing. I, I don't mind." So Paul stood up and he tells them. So. As soon as he gets up, he launches into this long sermon. Now, I want you to uh, understand, Luke is recording this sermon. This is not a word-for-word uh, a word exact thing of what he says. This is Luke as he's later on in life recording it. But as he's recording it, there are some similarities from Acts chapter 13, Paul's first sermon recorded, to Peter's first sermon recorded. Um, some of the similarities are, are this... Um, Both sermons are going to employ Psalm 16. Both sermons are going to attribute human and divine roles in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so the main reason that Luke is wanting you to see, emphasize these things, the similarities between Paul and Peter's message is because up until now, I mean, Peter's the number one guy, right? He's the head, right? And so it makes total sense that he preaches the gospel at Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. And so... As we go through the book of Acts, we've, we've already talked about it. There's the shift now where Peter's going to kind of fade back into the background. He's going to be the head guy in Jerusalem, but that's it. But now we've got Paul. And for the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's the main guy that's going to be looked at. And so as we read the book of Acts, we're be like, what happened to Peter? And I guess Paul's the man now. And so in, in a subtle way, Luke, as he's recording this, wants you to see that Paul's message is no different than Peter's. Paul's gospel is no different than Peter's. And he wants us to understand that the shift that the book makes in the ministry of the focus on Paul uh, from Peter is legitimate. It's totally legitimate because Paul's message is the same. So as you read this, you'll notice it's, the, it's similar uh, in, its, in its ways from Acts 2. And that's, that's Luke's intention. He's wanting you to see that um, the, the emphasis on uh, Paul is legitimate and the message of Paul is absolutely gospel. And so... Um, as the sermon's going through uh, from verse 16 all the way to verse 41, the sermon's kind of accompli- accomplishing two big things in, in three parts, it's in three parts, but there's two big things that it's trying to accomplish. It's first trying to help us see that Jesus is the climax of all biblical history. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the only Messiah and he's the only Jewish Messiah. And the second thing that this sermon's trying to accomplish is that Jesus' identity as the Messiah, has been 100% completely confirmed and verified by the resurrection. By the resurrection. I know that in America we celebrate the resurrection once a year. We should should celebrate it every Sunday. That's the whole point of Sunday. Because without the resurrection, there is nothing. So Christianity, all of Christianity, rests on the absolute certainty of the resurrection. So So Paul in his sermons, trying to help them see... Jesus is the climax of all the biblical history. He is the only Messiah, and everything rests on his resurrection. So he goes to this, um, he goes to the synagogue. They, hey, Paul, you got a word? Well, I think I could probably say something. This is what he says Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So we know his audience, we know he's contextualizing. He says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. I want you to notice, he's going to mention familiar places, mention familiar people that they would all be familiar with, from Egypt to Samuel to Benjamin to Saul, David, they know these names. Um, with Um uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them the judges until Samuel, the prophet, which we just read in the baby vacation, Hannah's son. And then they asked for a king and God gave them. That was a mistake, by the way, when they asked for a king. God should have just been their king. But he gives them a king, gives them Saul. Not a great guy. Um, Saul of Kish, a man of the uh, tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. But after that, um, whenever he removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king. David is the absolute hero. I mean, he, everybody and all of Israel, when you talk about kings. David is the king um, of whom he has testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. I still love it every time I read that. Just to know the life of David and then just still to think, I mean, after gobs and gobs of sin that he even took part of later in life, God still says, a man after my heart. Gives me great reason to rejoice that the Lord would love me the way assuredly as he loves me. Who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, so all of a sudden, Paul, as he's preaching, he's helping them see, hey, remember in the Bible, remember in the Old Testament scriptures where it said, David's going to have an offspring that's the Messiah? You should be looking out for that still. You should be looking out for that still. His offspring, the Messiah, who will be not just be the Messiah, but he'll be also be the slash king, you should still be legitimately looking out for him. And so he's telling this to people who understand that. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel. Oh yeah? Really? Who is it? And he looks right at me. and he says... A savior. That's what we want. Jesus. And so then all of a sudden, they're drawn in. Really? Jesus is this man, because we, we've got the foundation, we understand. Jesus is the one he promised. Just like he promised back in the Old Testament. There would be a forerunner right before the forerunner, who was Elijah that Savior Messiah would come. Well, it's happened. There was the forerunner before his coming. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, the foreigner Elijah or John the Baptist, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, no, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whom I am not worthy to tie. And so that's the first section. So here it is. That Paul's first sermon, we have the introduction, which is the Old Testament preparation for them. And the main emphasis, as we're looking at all of this, as he's unfolding for them, that Old Testament history, he's helping them see that um, God's taking the initiative in grace. God is always the initiative taker in grace. The Old Testament history is just God taking the initiative and giving them grace. Taking the initiative, picking them to be his people. Taking them and giving them out of Israel. Taking them, and even though they asked for a king, giving them a better king. um, Blessing them with the coming Messiah. God is always taking the initiative and giving them grace. And he uses these familiar people that they're familiar with so that they can quickly understand how the Old Testament points to the Messiah. And then even in that introduction, he helps them see in verses 16 through 25, that guy... Is Jesus. So in the introduction, he helps them immediately kind of vary in a summarized fashion. Go to to Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament um, prophecies. And then he's going to do this. He's going to look at them and he's going to say, Alright, I've just talked about Jesus. Now, what I want you to think about is this. Is there, since I think the fulfillment of the Messiah is Jesus, Is there any huge events and the life of this man, Jesus, that has happened, that can make us all, when we look at it, say, okay, yes, he is the Messiah. So in this next section, you can go ahead and put up number two. In this next section, from verse 26 down to 37, Paul is going to do that. He's going to take the focus, since he's already pointed them to Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, helping them see it's all about him. He's going to say, since I've just mentioned Jesus... Let's ask that big picture question. Is there anything about this man Jesus that would, that's happened in his life that would make us look at that and say, okay, that's true. That's true. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And there is. There's two major events that Paul is going to concentrate that have happened in the life of Jesus that are going to help him say... The the Messiah that's been promised in the Old Testament is, in fact, the Savior is, in fact, Jesus. And there's two events, which you can already see there, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul concentrates on those two major events. You can see them right there in verse 29 and right there in verse 30. I'll start from 26. And again, Paul is being so winsome to them. Look at this. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. Here's the message. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they do not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled by them condemning him. And though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Remember, he's talking about Jesus. So here's, here's why I say Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Two major events happened in this man's life that were foretold of old, that would make us think that yes, in fact, he is the Messiah. Number one, verse twenty-nine. When they carried all that was written, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. His death, he died. We knew that that was going to happen. As a matter of fact, uh, these particular people, when they're reading or uh, hearing Paul say that he was taken down from the tree, they knew. Cursed is the man that hangs on the tree. So they automatically are making the connections that that man was cursed when he hung on the tree. Exactly. He was cursed. He took all the curse so that we don't have to have any of the curse. Since Jesus took the full curse and full wrath of God, now we're free to not get it. And so we we can trust in the complete forgiveness. Not only is the first... The first thing is his death. There's a second event that happens in the life of Jesus that he focuses on. The first one is the death. The second one is the resurrection. And let's just pause here and make sure that everybody understands. It has to have these two. It can't just be the one. You can't just say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and that's all we need. We don't have to worry about the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're all going to die. Party it up there's no Christianity, there's no forgiveness of sin, there's no such thing as being saved, there's no such thing as anything. You're just living a life and one day you're going to be annihilated into non-existence. That's the reality if there's no resurrection. So we don't just say Jesus died on the cross, get forgiven, and that's it. The message is Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected. Without the resurrection, there's nothing. There's no forgiveness. We're it's it's all futile, as it says in First Corinthians fifteen. So Paul, as he's preaching this sermon, says there's two major events. One is his death, the next one, verse thirty, and this is just huge. This is just huge. But God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. He died on the cross, taking all the wrath. But when he died, his resurrection is absolutely crucial because his resurrection signifies. That even though he was dead by taking all the wrath of God, he defeated Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, we know that we have that defeated for us in our lives. And he's now living forever, never to die again in heaven. So we now, we, we, because he had victory over Satan, sin, and death, that victory is now ours. So those are the two events that he, he points to. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses, To the people. So basically what Paul does in verses uh, 29, 30, and 31 is he tells what he says when he says, this is the gospel of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, verses one through six. When he says that Christ was died according to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised according to the scriptures and then he appeared to Cephas in the 500. That's what it basically says in 1 Corinthians one through six and Paul tells that first story. One of my commentators, I wish I could remember which one, I can't remember, but he says this. It's just a good side note to remember. He said, notice when Paul preaches the gospel here, he doesn't talk about his Acts 9 personal experience, which would be a good story. Like if that happened to me, I would lead with that. You know what? I was walking down the road and this big light blinded me and I'll, i cause that's a pretty cool story. Not one mention of that here. He doesn't talk about his personal experience. Instead, he wants them to get saved. So what does he do? He concentrates on the major features of the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection, appeared to the 500. So, good for us. Use your personal experience. I'm not minimizing it, not saying you shouldn't. But, the gospel is Jesus' life, death, resurrection. Anyway, back to this. And then he says this. So, he helps them understand that Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament by pointing to these two major events in Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, by saying, since those things happened, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is, as it says, the one who is the offspring of David, <clears throat> God's offspring, the Savior, the promised one of Israel. <clears throat> and then he's going to make this major claim in verse 32 and 33, a huge, huge claim. This is his claim. We bring to you the good news, the gospel. This, as is mentioned in in verse 26, the message of salvation, we bring this gospel, this good news, this evangelion to you, um, what God promised to the fathers. This is what has been talked about of old. We're bringing you this message, this good news. This he has fulfilled to us, Jews, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written. So we'll get to that in a second. So here's his major claim. The gospel, the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ, this message of salvation, this gospel is confirmed as 100% verifiably trustworthy by Jesus' resurrection. Without the resurrection, this gospel is unconfirmed. But because the resurrection has happened, um, this gospel that Jesus is the Messiah is 100% verifiably confirmed. That's his claim. And then he substantiates this claim or proves this claim or backs up this claim by quoting for them three Old Testament scriptures right there in a row. Boom, boom, boom. You can see them kind of set off in little paragraphs. They're Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, Psalm 16-10. And so his claim is the gospel, the message of salvation, that Jesus is the Messiah is absolutely 100% confirmed and verified and trustworthy because of Jesus' resurrection. And he backs that up by quoting them. These three particular scriptures. First one, Psalm 2-7, right there in verse 33. That's why it's written, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Historically, this is thought of to be David. But now we understand this to be Christ. This is a psalm about God's son. God's promise to to David that his descendant would sit on the throne one day. And God's throne would one one day be established through David's son, not Solomon but Jesus. And so it says, today you are my, you are my son, today I have begotten you. R.C. Sproul under, helps us understand this begotten word. He says, when Paul made this appeal to Psalms 2, he was not talking about a moment when Jesus was begotten. The begottenness, which isn't a word, it's, it's underlined in red in your word, but he's R.C. Sproul and he can make up words. So he says, uh, the, the begottenness of this psalm was fulfilled at the resurrection, where in a sense, since begottenness was a synonym for exaltation. So as Christ was exalted, as Christ was resurrected, the, the gospel is now confirmed that Jesus absolutely is the one that's been told about in the, in the Old Testament. Then he keeps going with Isaiah 55.3, where he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The holy and sure blessings that are promised to David are sure because Jesus is one of David's sons. He's the offspring of David, And so he receives the holy and sure blessings. And then he confirms it with Psalm 16, which Peter also quoted. And this just wraps it all up. I mean, this is a lock solid argument when you get to this one. Psalm 16 says, you will not let your holy one, he's talking about Jesus, see corruption. Corruption. And he explains what that even means. For David, after he had served a purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, he died, right? And when he died, they put him in the casket. And if we were actually able to go, we could, we could pull that bad boy out and we could look at that body. And you know what would be there? A corrupted, decayed human skeleton. That's what would be there. But you can't do that with Jesus. No one can go to the grave and pull it out and be like, he ain't there. That body never saw corruption. Because three days later, it was resurrected. There's no skeleton of Jesus anywhere. Every person that's ever died, even Lazarus who was resurrected, died again. Every person that's ever been resurrected, except Jesus, eventually died, and you can point at their decaying skeleton, but not Jesus. His body never saw corruption. That's why it says, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. God's holy one not ever being allowed to decay, but being resurrected and now in heaven, right now. He's still in his human form, just like us, but in his glorified sense. Um, he's never died again. He died that once, was resurrected, and now he's in heaven. Since, and he's, he's not like David. He is the offspring of David, the Messiah who never saw. And so since that's the case, his resurrection confirms that he is the Messiah... That the gospel is absolutely, this message is absolutely 100% verifiably true and trustworthy. Because Jesus never died again. He defeated Satan's sin and death forever. And is now resurrected forever. So, in this sermon, Paul, Paul gives the Old Testament uh, history. Points them to Jesus. Helps them see exactly how Jesus is the fulfillment of that by his death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And then as he gets here to verse 37... Like every sermon you've ever been told to do in preaching class, you take it to application, and he does that immediately. After he preaches the gospel to them, he doesn't just say, now bow your heads, let's pray, and everybody go get some Subway. Like, that's not it, right? He says, there's a line here, and every single person's got to make a decision now. Every person, once you've heard this, has to decide which one is it. And for Paul, there's only two decisions. There's not like five or six decisions you can make. Uh, maybe I'll follow Jesus. I'll kind of follow Jesus. Maybe I'll, I'm 100%. I'm on board. i got to think for a while. I'm going to blog for it a while. I just need to read. Or I'm out for right now. Maybe to, no, It's just two decisions, right? It's yes, no. That's all he's got. You can see it right here. Let it be known to you, therefore. So the therefore is Paul's little word that that says, I'm driving into application. I'm driving into, you got to make a response. So number three, you can put up number three. Number three is this. Conclusion. Here's this conclusion. There's a choice. And it's just two. Life, death. That's all you get. The life one, you can see it. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. From which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So the first choice is believe, be forgiven of sin and be free, literally as it says, from everything. You're not under the law. See, the old, these Jewish people, they knew there's only one way to be like right with God, law keeping. If I can keep the law perfect, I'm right with God. I just got to follow all the 628 laws or whatever it is. And if I, can, if I can nail that down, then I'm good. But no one can do that. And so what he says is, You don't have to do that. The law helps you see that you're a sinner, but you can never keep it. So instead, don't go the law route. Believe in Jesus who kept the law perfectly and be forgiven. So the first choice is believe, be forgiven of your sins and now be free. That's Paul's first choice. That's life or death. Here's the second choice. Beware, therefore, lest what you see said, and the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells you. So if the first choice is believe, be forgiven of your sins, and be free, the second choice is beware. Not believe, but beware. That's what he says right there in verse 40. Beware, not be forgiven of your sins, experience the wrath of God, and perish. That's why he says you'll perish. Not be free, but never be free. Those are your two choices. That's it. And he's making that call to them, and he's making that call to us, right now in these moments. Believe, be forgiven of your sins, and be free, or beware, experience the wrath of God and perish, and never be free. Derek Thomas, oh, I should point this out, this is so good. The word freed, it's translated freeze in the, freed in the SV. it's the, it's the uh, Greek term dikaio, it's, it's also to justify, so it's justification. So you can read it in a sense where he says, everyone who believes is justified or freed from everything. So we're talking about justification here. We're talking about being declared righteous in God. The courtroom, the gavel coming down, you're innocent. Hear this sentence. This is not just for unbelievers. Every, if you've been a believer for 40 years, hear this. The end of 38, everyone, that's pretty all-encompassing, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Just bask in that for a second. Let your mind take a long deep in the deep end of the pool and swim around in that truth. Everyone who believes is freed from everything. That doesn't feel like my day-to-day experience, but that's what's true. And the gospel is beckoning you to take that reality and make it yours. Derek Thomas says, The law cannot confer forgiveness of sins and declare a person in right standing with God. The law condemns those who attempt to obey it. It's the gospel that justifies through faith alone and Christ alone. Salvation can't come from law keeping. It's only faith alone in Christ. And everyone can get in on this. Everyone can believe. Everyone who believes is freed from everything. So whatever sin you think that God just does not have the power to overcome, it's silly. It's legitimately silly to look at the Lord and say, I'm sorry, God, you just can't come over this, overcome this. There's just no way. This sin's too great for you to forgive. It's silly to tell the Savior that. Everyone who believes is free from everything. But there's also the other side. Beware, experience the wrath of God and never be free. And Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5. There's an irony here of quoting Habakkuk 1.5. If you've ever gotten a missionary card, anybody, you know, you get your missionary cards, like it's the couple and they got like a bunch of kids on there and they put a verse on there and they put it on your refrigerator and every time you eat, you're like, I've got to pray for this couple. And sometimes, maybe you've seen this, I've seen Habakkuk 1.5. Like the second part. I've seen. For I'm doing a work in your days. A work that you would not believe. Even if anybody tells you. That's on their their verse. On on their card. But that's. The irony is. That it's not about like. God's about to just do something awesome. And save everybody. (laughs) That's not. not, Like Paul's using that particular verse. In a negative sense. Because it's in a negative sense. It's from Habakkuk 1.5. Where Paul's telling them. I'm about to do something. Really, really bad. To all of you who are Israel. Namely. I'm going to, the sovereign hand of God is going to allow the Babylonians, whom the Israelites can't stand, to be instruments of God, to be the divine judgment upon Israel because of their sin, come in and destroy them, and take their land as a, as a symbol of God's divine wrath of their sin and send them out. <laughs> so, we probably shouldn't put that on our mission cards. But Paul looks at that particular verse from Habakkuk 1 5 and says, that's the line you're choosing. If you don't believe in Jesus. In the same way, remember, they know the Old Testament. You're saying yes to the divine wrath of God coming in as judgment upon you, like the pagan Babylonians coming in and taking over all that's yours and kicking you out away from this. That's what's gonna happen if you don't trust in Christ. The divine wrath of God's going to happen, and you will become now a scoffer. Two choices believe. Be forgiven of all your sins, everything. And you're free or beware. Experience the wrath of God and perish and never be free. These are the exact same two choices we're given right now. And Paul is imploring us to not be a scoffer. Imploring us to not be a scoffer. Now, I started off by saying, hopefully helping all of us see that we're all called to be on mission right now. And what I want you to see, because <clears throat> you might say, I believe that FUD. I know that I'm supposed to be on mission. And I, if you could just follow me around it one week and hear me preach the gospel and help me help hear me proclaim the gospel to people, you would see, like, I say it several times a week and shot down, shot down, shot down, shot down no thanks, shot down, no thanks. Maybe one person's like, you know, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> but that's all I get. Like, no one's like, you know what? Like in Acts 16, tell me how to be saved. Like, we don't ever get that, right? I don't ever... That's not my experience. Verses 42 through 52 are meant to encourage you. Here we have Paul embarking on the first great missionary, first great missionary journey. And he gets this mixed bag of response as well. He gets some, some people glad, but he also gets opposition. So look at these different responses. <clears throat> first is gladness as they went out. So here's what happened. The people are like, Paul, that sermon was legit. Come back here next Saturday. We want you back again. I'm going to tell all my friends. I'm going to bring everybody. It's going to be awesome. Come back. So Paul's like, all right, yeah, for sure. I mean course he is so that's what happens as they went out the people begged that these things might be told to them the next sabbath and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up many jews and devout converts to judaism followed paul and barnabas who as they spoke with them urged them to continue in the grace of god they're like paul and barnabas continue the grace of god hey i'll see you next saturday that's awesome i'm glad you believe let's let's do let's do this again bring your bring your folks bring your people the next sabbath um so you've got gladness And then here comes the opposition in verse 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. Uh, One of my commentators, Stott, Thomas, I can't remember, thought that Luke was taking a little bit of an exaggerated, like justified, but kind of an exaggerated, like the whole city came out. Luke was just excited. Maybe it was the whole city, but maybe Luke's just excited. The whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And here it is. So there's, when this happens the first week, the Jews who were leaders were like, we're glad Paul did this. But all of a sudden, people are starting to talk about that week, you know, that seven days, everybody's timeline was filled with Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And so the religious leaders were like, wait, what about me? Don't you like me still? And like, so they got jealous. So the religious leaders don't like that. So they're going to show up to try to, to mess up Paul and Barnabas <clears throat> from having all this success, you know. So uh, verse 45, but when the Jews saw these crowds, these were the... Uh, likely the religious leaders, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken by Paul, reviling him. So it went from gladness to contradiction and reviling. Like, we don't like this guy. How about this? How about this? You're wrong because of this. You're wrong because of this. And Paul's like, wait a second, I thought that y'all liked me telling this gospel and now you don't like it. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. This is where it, this is where it just gets awesome. Because uh Paul's gonna Paul's gonna uh infuriate them a little bit, maybe not intentionally, but, so here's, here's what's going on. There, there's, there's a prophecy in Isaiah 49, I think it's 49.6, 49.6. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 49.6 that says, um, when this gospel's preached, you're, the Jews at the time are going to oppose it, and because the Jews oppose the gospel, they don't want to hear it anymore. They're like, ah, we don't believe that, we don't want it. The messenger is going to say, well, if you don't want it, I'm going to go tell the Gentiles then. Paul's going to look at them and say, hey, guess what? That prophecy back in Isaiah 49, you're the ones fulfilling it right now. You're the ones rejecting the gospel. And now I'm going to go tell it to the Gentiles whom you disdain. And they're going to trust in Jesus because you're the ones not wanting to believe. So here, here's, how, here's how it happens. Um, <clears throat> so they're, they're all reviling and, and, and such. And here it goes, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. So they could have cowered, but they didn't. They were, they were bold saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, back in Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Gentiles hear this and they're like, woohoo, yeah, we like that. The Jews are like, what? that's not right. So verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, so this mixed bag of, mixed bag of results, right? This is what I'm trying to point out to you. When you preach the gospel, some are going to rejoice and love it. Some are going to be like, what? This is what's happening. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Um, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the entire whole region. So the Lord takes this, people are being appointed to salvation and they're They're believing in Christ. So the Gentiles are loving it. But, verse 50, back off to the persecution and the the opposition. But the Jews incited the devout women of high. High standing and the leading men of the city We we don't know who these high women of men standing And the leading men of the city But we just know that the Jews got them They're powerful, they have a say so If they say something everybody's like Oh we gotta do what they want to do They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas And drove them out of their district This is likely likely a violent expulsion Like you gotta get out of here and now And then verse 51 But when Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the district It says they shook the dust from their feet against them And they went out to Iconium This is as per what Jesus did But, mixed bag, back over to 51, or sorry, 52, the disciples that were just kicked out, they're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. So you just see all these kind of different reactions. Some people believe, some people don't, some people oppose, some people persecute, some people are joyous. And I just want to, I want to promise you that this is going to be the way it's going to be for us. It's not ever just going to be like, I preached the gospel to 100 people, all 100 people got saved. They think I'm the hero. Man, it's awesome. Like, I just feel great. It's never going to be like that. So, let's conclude this way. We're in Acts chapter 13 now. We're, we're basically halfway. We're basically halfway. 30 sermons in. Um, and it's impossible to preach the book of Acts without the big idea of every sermon because the sermon is about, every text is about this. Uh, this is how the church spread. Therefore, we as believers need to be about the work of spreading the gospel as well. So as we see that, I know over the last 30 sermons, me, Jack, Joe, whoever's been preaching through this, has encouraged you to want to be obedient to the call of spreading the gospel just like them. Be willing to take opposition. So as you've heard 30 sermons of, and this is not to to make you feel down. This is just a question for you to think deeply, okay? After 30 sermons or so, half a book of Acts, of hearing people say, you need to trust in Christ. How many people have you evangelized to? After 30 sermons of people telling, uh, of of your pastors telling you to evangelize. This is not meant to make you feel bad. This is just to make you think. Hmm. Now, I want you to hear this because this is the great news about the gospel. There's grace. Whatever the answer is, there's grace. It's not like, well, I'm in the doghouse now. I really got to, I probably got to read the Bible for like, like a whole year before God's even going to be my friend again. Like, that's not it. The gospel is, you're free of everything. There's grace for everything. So it, it doesn't matter. If you have the best day of Christianity of your life and the worst day of Christianity of your life, here's what's the truth. You are in perfect relationship with him because you're a son and daughter no matter what. Every day, that's the same thing. So there's grace. So let's ask these first these last couple questions. I want you to think to yourself, how can I evangelize better? How can I evangelize better? What are the things that I can do to become a better evangelist? That's someone that tells people about Jesus. What do I need to get better at? Do I need to get better at learning the message of the gospel? Like like I just need to focus in on this particular text where Paul talks about his death his resurrection, and his appearance uh, to many people and and, and talk about the the features of the gospel. I need to get better at that. Or I just need to get better at boldness. Like I have all kinds of chances. And man, I uh, just never say anything. I just get scared. I probably think that's where most of us are. But there's a third place. Like, but if I'm honest, I've created a bubble and I can't think of one non-believer that I really rub shoulders with. I've created myself, accidentally, a bubble that I just can't think of one person I don't even know. I need to to put myself in a network or an environment where unbelievers are there so that I can get to know them, befriend them, and one day share the gospel with them. There's all kinds of ways we can answer this. How can I evangelize better, right? But think about that. You are receiving grace upon grace right now if you're not doing this well. Grace upon grace. So this is not meant to condemn you. This is instead meant to help you see that there's therefore now no, no combination for those who are in Christ Jesus. And out of love for Jesus, I want to obey this. The next one, last question is this. As I think about evangelism, am I prepared to be opposed sometimes? Am I okay with that? Can I press on? Can I still be bold like Paul and Barnabas? Or will I just, you know, ah, I can't handle it. There's going to always be opposition against us. And so as we as we look at this text and as we're really kind of wrapping up halfway through the book of Acts um, let's look at this and resolve in our mind I really am in my future. Like this is it. Like this I'm in my day. This is my day. This is the day I've been I've been promised. Here I am. These are my moments that the Lord is promising me and there is no other. I want to be obedient to the talk, to the task to the call he's given me. I want to be like Paul and Barnabas not because of the sovereign hand of God bringing about persecution forcing me, but because I'm just taking the responsibility as the church to say, yes, let's do it. I don't want to be a better evangelist. And even if opposition comes, I still want to see people come to know Christ. We're going to go into a time of Lord's Supper in just a second, where we're going to be reminded through the bread and the cup of the grace upon grace upon grace that the Lord gives us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this text uh, in your word would cause us to be better evangelists, would cause us to want to share this gospel with people more. We love you. And we thank you for this amazing message and this amazing salvation that we've received. And we do pray, Lord, that you would use it to change people, that you would use it to save people in our lives. We love you.